the Apostle Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The word of the Lord. If you've been here the last few weeks, really since early January, you know, um, we've been talking about the fact that we're part of a small church planning communion called the Liberty Communion of Churches that's 20 years old uh, as of last month. And uh, we're all relatively small to medium-sized churches throughout the Philadelphia area, as far west as um, Harrisburg, um, far east as Jersey. And uh, we've, we're we are also part of a denomination. We're part of the Presbyterian Church in America, though not all the churches in the Liberty Communion are part of that denomination. Uh, but we're also part of this thing called the Liberty Communion that was started from the beginning with this idea of, in a city of neighborhoods like Philadelphia, uh, can we be a church that plants churches? When you get to a certain size, the goal isn't to get as big as you can. Not, not that we could ever get as big as we want. I don't know. I don't want to assume that. But... Once you get to a certain size, maybe you're pregnant to start another congregation. And that's kind of been the story of this, of this multiplication. And sometimes it's gone uh, to, to, to as far as we can tell with our eyes, gone great. And other times not as great, you know, some have closed. Um, but up to the moment, there's eight of them. And um, the, the leaders of Liberty Communion, uh, who you'll hear from in two weeks, Jim Anger is one of them. He's going to speak for us uh, the first Sunday in February. We said, 20 years in, what if we revisited what we're doing here? Why we decided back then, I shared uh, two weeks ago, that I didn't know it was the first service, but I walked into the first ever Liberty worship service when I was 20, and um, on the verge of 21, and 20 years later, well, here I am, and here some of you are. You know, this might be some of your first weeks. Uh, this might be, some of, some, some of you might have been here just as long as I have, and we've said hello and goodbye to so many in the meantime. But it just seems to be a good time to ask, what are we doing here? And um, in order to do that, we've been taking a look at this mission statement. If you found your way here this morning for the first time, chances are you looked at our website, and the mission statement is right there on the homepage. We exist to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus. And we're spending January and February doing a couple sermons about living as the presence of Jesus. Today and next week, we're going to be talking about speaking is the very presence of Jesus. And then um, we're going to spend a few weeks in February talking about serving is the very presence of Jesus. The, the controlling metaphor for all of this and why we're able to say something as audacious as we are here as the very presence of Jesus, uh, the controlling metaphor for why we can say something like that is in John 15, when Jesus was talking to his disciples the night before he was crucified, and he said, here's how you need to understand your whole life from now on. I'm a vine. Think of me as a vine. Your branch is coming off that vine. And you're being sent into the world to bear fruit. We spent a couple weeks looking at what that means. Just a couple things that it means is it's a mistake for a Christian any given moment. And we do it all the time. But it's still a mistake. And we come back. And there's always grace. But we have to remember all the time and return all the time to the fact that 
our life isn't our own, and in fact, all spiritual vitality that would enable us to do anything, like Jesus says, even one positive thing for the kingdom of God, it comes out of abiding in him. Not saying, I'm going to do something amazing, like share my faith, or plan a church, or edify, build somebody up with the words of Jesus. All the strength for doing anything like that is actually his, not ours. And the fruit really comes out of our lives when we abide in him, just like a branch in a vine. A branch isn't going to be like, hey, I'm cool by myself. No. It draws all of its strength, all of life itself from that vine. And that's when stuff starts to happen. And that's where you're also united with all these other branches that we see, not just in this expression of Christ's body, but all over the world, all across the centuries, these branches doing amazing things, and nobody could stand up, as Jim said, as Jim led us in his prayers to get us started this morning, look what I did, but that's backwards. Look what the life of Christ did through all these unworthy branches. It's unbelievable. What I want you to get um, as we move into speaking and serving is uh, we are not saying, hey, First thing we got to do is abide in Christ. Then we're going to move on to to speak about him and serve. Actually, these aren't three different things. Everything we we do, including speaking in the name of Jesus, is just fruit that flows out of abiding in Christ. You never move past abiding in Christ, is what I'm trying to say, in order to start speaking about him. It's fruit that comes from abiding in him. Christ-like speech we're going to talk about today is the fruit that emerges from our branches as we abide in him. Two years ago, there's a friend of this church and a friend of our our denomination named Erwin Ince who wrote a book called The Beautiful Community. It's about um, the the church's multicultural mission to the world. And uh, he wrote a book called The Beautiful Community, and he came and spoke here. uh, Well, actually, back when we were still doing everything virtually. He came virtually to us. And he started his sermon by saying... um, I'm a CrossFitter, and you never have to wonder who are the CrossFitters, because they'll always let you know, like I just did, <laughs> just now. Um, you know, I think a lot of us, when we think about what it means to speak as the presence of Christ, we think about soapbox preachers. It used to happen all the time, still happens all the time, where I went to school at Temple University. It happens all the time in Center City, and it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it is. If somebody kind of sets up a box or a little pedestal, and they stand up, and they just start preaching, making speeches. Uh, I had never heard of the songwriter Sean Mendez, even though he's got 46 million Spotify Followers, I'd never heard of Sean Mendez until I was walking out of a Phillies game a few years ago with my son. And uh, as we were making our way back to the orange line, uh, we just heard all this screaming. And there was this stream of teenagers, and there was these people with megaphones on pedestals screaming at them. And Charlie said to me, Dad, what are they screaming about? And it turned out they were screaming about Jesus. Apparently, they were offended, their faith was offended by all these teenagers going to a Sean Mendez concert just south of there at uh, Wells Fargo Center. And apparently, they thought Jesus was really offended that all these people were going to a Sean Mendez concert. I think this is in our heads sometimes, and if you're not a Christian, but you're here uh, just listening in on what Christians are doing on Sunday mornings, um, 
you might have this in your mind too. And I know a lot of my friends who aren't Christians have this in their mind when they think about people speaking as the very presence of Jesus. They think about making speeches. Well, I know what it means to speak as the presence of Jesus. I see Christians doing it all the time. It means making speeches. The vast majority of the time, it has nothing to do with making speeches. Nothing to do with making speeches. Although, of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with speeches. It's a little more like CrossFitters, if, if, if you get my meaning. You just, you just share what's abiding, what you're abiding in. It just comes out. And like CrossFitters, that can still get kind of annoying. You know what I mean? Like you're around somebody who's just talking and talking and talking and, you know, eyes, is, eyes are glazing over and, like, they're clearly not listening, but the person just keeps going. Actually, I think the Apostle Paul was a little bit like that because he says here something interesting at the end of this letter to the church in Colossae where he asks all the words that I read, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, are wrapping up a letter to the church in Colossae, and they're basically all words about Paul asking for prayer about his speech. He's telling the church, would you pray for me about my speech? Because I, Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not always great at it. Sometimes I go on and on and on and eyes are glazing over. And I know I'm not getting through. So pray that a door would open. Doors that my lips could never blast open. Pray that God would open doors and also make it clear. Pray that it would, once the doors open, that it would be clear. And those are my two points this morning as we talk about what it means to speak as the very presence of Jesus. We're going to take Paul's prayer request. If Paul needed this prayer, so do we. So do we. Access for speech. That's his first prayer request to the church in Colossae. Church, pray for me that there would be access for my speech about Jesus. And secondly, pray for my clarity of speech. Access for speech, clarity of speech. First, access for speech. Verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. Well, I'll just read verse 2 because it's short. Right there at the top of page 3. Paul says, to them, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us, this is Paul and his ministry companions, those who are chained up with him and those who visit him in his chains. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul is saying, he cannot force the message about Christ into hearts. God has to open a door. God has to open a door. If the words about Jesus, the story, who he is, why it mattered, his life, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his spirit that's in us now, what he's doing in the world through his church, eyes will glaze over. Ears will be plugged up. It'll just be white noise. Or like Muzak that you kind of ignore when you're walking through a department store. Unless God gives access. Actually, last fall we talked about this. In John chapter 3, Christ says that when someone comes to faith, when actually the words about the mystery of Jesus Christ gets a hold of a heart, what it's like is being born of the Spirit. Being born again or born from above. And he also says, think of it as like being born of the Spirit. You can't shove someone into the kingdom of God with your push or your words any more than you can make a life just come out of somebody that you just meet on the street and you make somebody be born. 
What's that impossible apart from the spirit and power of God? And in a way that is mysterious as the blowing of the wind. Like, think about a hurricane. You don't see the wind, but you see what's happening. You see what the wind's doing. It's intense. It can be soft. It can be explosive. You can't see it in a way that's as mysterious as that spirit wind. God is at work, and we join him in what he's doing. At best, it's like a midwife. You know, midwife. Midwife's not making the baby drop. Midwife's just there, right? Kind of knows how this thing works, is waiting for the moment, knows the path, is present. But isn't making it happen. That's us. That's us. Can't shove anybody into the kingdom of God. Can't happen. You got to pray, open a door. Pray that he'll open a door, Paul says. Why pray at all before we speak? Because prayer, we talked a little bit about this last week, Prayer is all about what God does, not about what we do. What are we doing when we pray? Help me with my plans? No, 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 no. I want to join you in what you only can do. Without an open door, the words will have no impact. That's why he prays for access. But here's the other reason why Paul asks for a door to open. Because doors do open. And doors can open anywhere. Doors do open and they can open anywhere. There's this moment in Luke 10, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus sends out 72 disciples at once. And he says something very interesting to them. He says, take very little with you. And when you go to a place, I want you to say, and a lot of people who I know who are really good at sharing their faith, literally say this every time they walk into a place. Let your peace rest on this place. They'll walk in and say, my peace rests on this place. And Jesus says to these 72, when you do that, keep your eyes and ears and hearts open for a, pe- for a person, any person who will receive your peace. It's kind of a weird way of putting it. What does that mean? Let my peace rest on a place and watch for somebody who's going to receive it. He means something like, really, as you abide in me, Just go into a place and be yourself. Somebody who's abiding in Christ, not hiding it, never for a moment thinking that you're the one who's going to blow the doors of their heart open to receive the kingdom of God, but at the same time knowing who you abide in. He also says, oh, by the way, some people aren't going to receive that peace. Somebody is. Some people will not I got some really concrete suggestions from you, and I can't give you chapter and verse, but I can give you branches on the vine in this room who I've learned it from, and I'm just going to embarrass them and throw some names out there. One man and one woman who I've seen do it, and it's not because they're great in of themselves, but I think it's part of their gift, and some of you have seen it too. One, one is Hannah Gujari, uh, who does crew ministry, and she'll tell you her hobby is being around people who have never heard the story. And when you're around her, it comes out. And the other person is Larry Walker. Some of you went out on MLK Day over to the tracks with our neighbors who were really struggling and enslaved to addiction, and you just went up on the tracks. And I wasn't there with you that day, but I've been with them before. And you're just like, what's happening? Does Larry know that person? Does Mandy's right there with him, by the way. 
watching them, here's just a little bit of suggestion that I have for you. Two things in particular. One, I think Jesus does hint at that, although I'm using different words, when he says, let your peace rest on a place, whether it's Lakalum Coffee or on the tracks or under the tracks at Lehigh and Emerald. Be, your, be yourself. Be yourself. Listen to this. The most winsome thing we can do is tell our own story to someone who's interested at all in knowing us. If that seems hard, you know what to do. You're already doing it. Abide in Christ. If you're not comfortable with who you are in Christ, you can always run back. You're doing that anyway, right? That is a process. It takes a long time for a Christian to cook, <laughs> to grow in actually being okay with who Christ has made them in such a way that his fruit comes right out of our branches. But be yourself. The goal, I think, is to talk about Christ like you talk about your other family members. You ever talk about your family? Or, or maybe if your family's not the first people who jump into your head that you're excited to talk about, the people that you're closest to. People you're excited about, they're doing interesting things. You love them. They teach you things. You tell stories about them. Why should Jesus be excluded from that? But he is, isn't he? Obviously, in conversations with people from different walks of life, the force is going to be, well, the news or your favorite sports team or what you're doing in work today. But why should Christ, whom you're abiding in and drawing your life from, be excluded from that? Practice not excluding him as you are yourself and watch for the doors to open. Be yourself by the power of Christ. That's the first one. The second one is this. Just walk through some door. Jesus is basically saying in his own way, Paul's saying here, pray that a door will open. Jesus basically says, walk through a door, a literal door, and then find out what spiritual doors God is opening. Walk through some door. Be open to connection. Be curious about people and watch with the eyes and love of the Christ that you abide in. Watch. It is okay to talk to people who are waiting in line with you for coffee. It's okay. At the park, you can ask someone, how's it going, and mean it. And then listen to what they say. Let people connect with whatever faith you've got. Someone is likely to receive it. Open a door. Access of speech. That's the first point. Second thing he asked prayer for, clarity of speech. This is end of verse 3, beginning of verse 4, back there at the top of page 3 in your bulletin. Um, I'll just read all verse 3 again because you see how it just flows into verse 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He's not just praying for access. He's praying for clarity, and I think this is fascinating. Listen to this. The Apostle Paul wrote more theology in terms of the number of letters in our New Testament than anybody else in the New Testament. And he's asking for prayer that he can be clear. He's sometimes confusing, but he writes a lot of clear stuff. I do not think this is a prayer about Paul not knowing how to be clear. It's not like he doesn't have the knowledge or the skill to be clear. You know what he's praying for? 
He's praying that he won't be too afraid to be clear. That's a very different prayer request, and here's why. Most scholars think as they follow the journey of Paul throughout the book of Acts, and they put the letters of Paul right alongside the narrative in the book of Acts, they think that he's writing this letter, the letter of Colossians, from a prison in Ephesus. Do you remember Ephesus in the book of Acts? Do you remember what happens in Ephesus and why it's a pretty scary place for Christians to be? This is what happens in Acts chapter 19. The Christians first start proclaiming Christ in Ephesus. And Ephesus is the place where the temple of Artemis was. And the temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Christians lived every day in the shadow of the temple of Artemis. And they felt its shadow every day to the extent that when they started talking about Jesus, all these idol builders... What did they build? They built idols to Artemis. And when tourists came through to worship at the temple of Artemis, they would sell them, but the Christians start affecting their bottom line and a riot starts. A massive riot that's so confusing, not everybody even knows what's happening. All they know is it's about the Christians, these are the bad guys, and it's their speech that started it all. It is a scary thing to speak about Jesus in Ephesus. Paul says, pray that I'd speak clearly anyway. Sometimes write it. We saw this, I remember a few years ago, we preached about 2 Timothy, which is arguably the very last words Paul ever wrote. And you get these words of confidence, but then you get these tremors that come out too. It's like, wow, this guy's a human being. Almost forgot. The Apostle Paul's a human being. In addition to being the, the apostle to the Gentiles, he's a human being. He's frightened. Pray that I'd speak clearly Anyway, there was an old show on cable news. Some of you might remember. It's dated a little now, at least a decade old. It was called Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Keith Olbermann used to be a sports center anchor on ESPN. He got his own show on the news. And he had a segment called The Worst Person in the World. And for a while, this was every day. Every day, there was a new worst person in the world. And uh, eventually, he got less popular, and he went back to sports casting, and he did this show on like ESPN2 uh, called Sports Countdown with Keith Olbermann, and there was a worse person in the sports world every show, and one time, I knew the guy who was the worst person in the, the sports world, and I knew the guy because he was my ninth grade geometry teacher, who turned into the principal of my old high school who one day, because uh, the, the, the mascot was and still is the Redskins, uh, and like the Washington Redskins, there was a lot of unpopularity about that name, and the, the sports editor of the school newspaper decided to write like a takedown column about how, how we shouldn't be called the Redskins anymore, and the principal said, don't do it. Sports editor did it anyway. And so um, my old geometry teacher, the, the, the principal, went around the hallways with a wheelbarrow and took every paper he could find and threw them all out. And it's just one of those stories that like news cycles pick up on and it just goes global. And he became the worst person in the sports world. And as soon as that story got to circulate, I'm like, I know this guy. And he's got, definitely has not awesome moments. But if this guy's the worst person in the world, this definitely someday could be me. Like, maybe all of us are, and, and this is like a really not colorful story. And, and like, 
he totally did a dumb thing, and you could even argue, like, something that maybe he should lose his job over. But how far away am I really from this guy I know who the world's looking at and saying, you're the worst person in the world? And maybe it's not even on my worst day. On my worst day, I am the worst person in the world. But what about what the world thinks about having the name Jesus on my lips? You know, there are people, there's probably not going to be a riot today about people with the name Jesus on their lips out in the neighborhoods of the river wards. But there are people on my block and in the schoolyard where I drop off my kids and the places where I shop and relationships, you know, I've been in this neighborhood since 04, 19 years, of people who are like, those have been fraught relationships for decades now. And they don't seem to be getting easier. And a lot of it does seem to be related to my relationship with Jesus sometimes. What if someone took a photo of me at just the wrong time or I was recorded saying something that I'm entirely capable of saying that doesn't represent Jesus the way I should? Or if it happens when I represent Jesus exactly as I should? Folks, I'm scared. I'm scared to speak clearly. And weeks go by and I don't feel it at all. And I actually believe that I'm like a mature guy at sharing my faith. And then like a moment comes, sometimes in the presence of somebody that it's crazy that I care about what they think at all. And I feel just like a scared little kid. I don't know if you relate to that at all. I think you do. I think a lot of us feel this threat, particularly since the rise of social media. It can feel like everyone is on the hunt for the worst person of the moment while we're all simultaneously making sure we're not that person. Anything you say can and will be used against you, not only in your worst moments, but even if you're upholding something that is good and right but sometimes unpopular like the gospel. If Christ's life is mine, I will sometimes be accepted and I will sometimes be rejected just like he was and is. The goal, folks, is not to find ways to not be rejected. The goal is for me to find my life so totally in Christ that I don't have my own reputation to lose anyway. And that's not losing yourself. There is no branch like you. And in fact, as you abide in Christ, all the fascinated, sanctified, interesting, God-intended things about you actually bear fruit. And it's like the Spirit saying, there she is. There he is. Only as they abide in me are they that beautiful, unrepeatable person that I had in mind from before the foundation of the world. And how about this one, folks? I don't know if we forget that when we look at a neon cross or you have a cross around your neck. But did you know that the cross is, it's many things, but what it was essentially in the first century is it was a sign of a fool on display. That's what the cross is. The cr whoever's on a cross is a fool who crossed the wrong person. And look what happens. Don't do that. Don't make the same respect, mistake as that person. But we wear them around our necks, and we light them up in our churches. 
the fool on display symbol. Why? Well, because this fool on display symbol is also the supreme act of love. He knew he was going to look like a weak fool dying the death of a slave, even though he's the one through whom all things were created. It was also the supreme act of love addressing the sin problem that most at the foot of the cross didn't seem to care about that day as they taunted him, look at the fool. I think Paul ends these verses with that gospel tension. Oh, you're going to be a fool, folks. You're going to be a fool. But exactly when you are most despised and loved anyway, exactly at that place, those are moments of Christ-likeness like none other. Blessing coming through being despised. Is this not the way? It's everything. It's the life running right through that vine. Paul ends in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's a gospel cross, full on display tension here in verse 6. First, he says, let your conversation, whoever you're talking to in the world, whether it's talking at kids going to a Shawn Mendes concert, or if you're in coffee line or at the park, let always, 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 he says, let your speech always be gracious, full of grace. See those people the way God sees them. See them not as they are or how you think you are and you got to go after them somehow. See them as they might be full of the love of Jesus, secure in his love, bearing fruit themselves in Jesus' name. Always, always, always let your words be full of grace. But he also says, seasoned with salt. You know what salt is? You know what Jesus means in Matthew 5 when he says you're the salt to the earth? Salt's a preservative. Salt is the thing in the ancient world you put on your meat so it doesn't rot. Salt is the thing in the world that keeps it from rotting all the way. Salt is a corrective. Salt means instruction. Salt means a challenging word sometimes. Let every word, every word be full of grace, but don't lose your salt. Don't lose your salt. Don't call good what is evil. Don't call evil what is good. Unpopular as salt can be. Speaking with grace and truth. This will happen. We will speak this way if we abide in him and his words. Folks, if you're listening to these words, let me say this in closing before we go to this table of grace. If you listen to these words, and you know you're somebody who loves to tell people all the ways that they're wrong, and you have no love for them, what's the answer? The answer is abide in Christ. See how he loves his enemies. What if the person who loves loving people, but you are scared to death? speaking a syllable towards the most egregious acts around us. What's the answer? Go get a spine. No, that's not the answer. The answer is abide in Christ. Look how he holds to the truth so lovingly all the way to the cross. If you are ashamed of what people will think of you and you feel like this has been the story of your whole life, is the story like 
just go pull yourself up by your bootstraps, march into a hard situation. You know, there's some good aspects to exposure therapy. I recommend none of them apart from abiding in Christ. Your worth isn't based on how well you share the faith. Your worth is based on he loves you. And, believe it or not, out of that source is where the best speech is going to come from anyway. You're feeling guilty because you don't share enough about Christ. What's the answer, folks? There's only one answer to any of this stuff. Abide in the vine. Abide in his love and his grace and his mercy for you. Anything good is going to come out of that. Apart from it, you cannot do one thing in his name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.